You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, A24 tells us a Swiss Army ghost story. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani and... Oh, my... My co-host isn't here again. I... I'm just so alone on this island. I don't know if I could find somebody... Wait, what's that? I, I see a blue-suited figure who's quite flatulent and looks... Pretty much like a corpse over here. Is that... It's Ryan Quarterman here to save the day again! Yet again! <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, any long-time listeners... Uh, one, first-time listeners, uh, this is going to be so confusing to you. Uh, but welcome to the show. We'll get to regular business in a moment. Uh, recurring listeners might think, hmm, Ryan Quarterman again. Um, he was just on a couple episodes ago and Adam wasn't here. And I guess Adam isn't here again. Is there some sort of conspiracy going on? Is there an I, Tanya-ing going on? Are you, like, breaking Adam's ankle or something like that? Yeah, no, I... He's afraid to face me. He's afraid of your boy. <laughs> he, he just heard that Universal Monsters episode a couple episodes ago. Just like, oh, I can't compete with that. 94 episodes, and it's never been this good. He's fucking shaking, is what it is. <laughs> yes, of course. No, no, but here's the thing. So... Ryan came in in a pinch for that episode a couple episodes ago. Uh, he was intended to be a guest with Adam this week. This was always in the cards. We'd planned this episode for months, honestly, um, yeah. as we'll get into in a bit. Um, but Adam had a last-minute family emergency, and uh, we hope he's uh, doing all right. And um, we'll gladly see him continue on, and hopefully on consistent weeks, especially. We don't want this to be an every-other-week-Adam-shows-up thing. <laughs> I assure you, Adam doesn't want that either. He's very um, upset that he isn't on the particular episode here. Uh, but Ryan's here, and he's going to steer us through um, or sink the ship, whichever. I mean. <laughs> a little from column A, a little from column B. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, uh, Ryan, I wanted to have you on for this because um, we're doing another production company like we did last week for Canon Films. And uh, in, in this case, though, we're going... Still independent, but in a very different direction from the campiness of canon. We're doing a modern production company that's alive and thriving, and in fact, they have a new movie coming out. Um, it is A24 Productions, a very popular indie chain that's been around here. Um, we've covered, like, Moonlight was a film of theirs we covered previously on the show, um, and they've, you know, been cranking out a bunch of movies that have been nominated for several Oscars. Uh, right now, they have a movie called First Cow coming out, which I found out isn't a political film. Despite that title, you would think, oh, it's the first cow. No, it is actually um, a film about literally the first cow to come to America. It's a fictional version of that particular story that looks interesting. Uh, but also, we just really wanted to do this because uh, I, I've been a big fan of theirs ever since I kind of started. But I pale in comparison to Mr. Ryan Quarterman <laughs> here, um, who, despite the premise of our show, which if you're new, each week Adam and I usually do a good and a bad feature that's picked at the 
end of the previous episode uh, from two random movies. One of us has two good movies, one of us has two bad movies. Um, Ryan, you have made a bold declaration on your letterbox and other places that um, there is no such thing as a bad film from this production company, correct? Yes, and that's 100% true, and don't at me. It's it's the truth. Face, face the truth. <laughs> Right, that's where we have to face reality. There's absolutely no bad film in this production company at all, whatsoever. No. Even in the films that I think are weaker, there are very interesting choices being made. Every film they make feels like some artist's vision. It may not be, you know, perfect, and not all of them are going to be something like you know, like you mentioned, Moonlight, but all of them are really fucking unique and solid and really beautiful films that encapsulate somebody's story. And it isn't going to be for everyone all the time, but if you go through these films, I guarantee you, you are going to find at least one film that becomes like an all-time favorite. Well, it's interesting because this is like one of a few different production companies that kind of do this sort of thing where it's like they do tend to like be very artist driven and also stuff. There's places like Anna Perenina or yeah. um, Neon, for example, which has released a couple of really great films in recent years. What do you think makes A24 stand out compared to some of those other indie darling companies? I think, I think one, it helps that they were kind of at the forefront, I think a little bit more than something like a Neon, which Neon's coming strong right now and they've been building for a while, but they, I, they don't have that like brand prestige that something like an A24 has uh, right now. And I, I think what separates it ultimately is I could be completely wrong, but I don't think they'll ever get to the point where people, people go see it because it's a neon release. People will go see it because it's a, a Perinna release, but people will go for an a24 release i have no interest in in first cow outside of the fact that it is an a24 release and i trust that company enough to back them up and know that yeah it's probably going to be something of of real quality well yeah especially because i think the first one both of us mutually saw that was an a24 was very early on like they started in 2013 spring breakers which yeah. you know at the time you were a massive fan of when i was very at, early in our friendship at the time i'm still a massive fan of that shit that movie is a goddamn masterpiece i'm never going to be able to properly tell anyone what spring breakers means to me I have a connection with Spring Breakers that is transcendent of words. It's just a, an amazing film that it, it. After seeing that, I became really interested in A twenty four, and I started looking into all their films. Shortly after that, they did the Bling Ring, which like fucking I loved, and between the, that whole year. Of Bling Ring, uh, Spring Breakers, I think they had one more in that year. Spectacular Now, which is phenomenal, very underrated movie. Yes. Between those three films, I, I just, I was head over heels. Like, everything was hitting for me. Well, yeah, and I think what's so interesting is they kind of hit 
weird slumps. Like, 2014 is a weird year for them, where I would argue they have some of their bigger missteps, and also where they're kind of trying to find themselves as a production company, and sort of that brand that we're talking about. But I think it's around 2015, when especially I think the movie that sort of defines what A24 is to me as a brand at all is The Witch, I think on so many levels, especially the horror brand of it, which I think that's something especially that sort of has hit their them as sort of production thing, especially for like someone who used to do a horror movie podcast. Lord knows how many A24 movies came out, and there were so many people arguing either, oh, this is elevated horror, so it's not a horror movie, like critics would do that, (laughs) or horror fans would be like, oh, critics like this, it's not a horror movie, and it sucks. So it's just this like weird thing where it's just like gets these huge responses out of people either way. Um, and meanwhile, I'm just here like, it's a really good horror movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's no reason it can't be both. Uh, right. There's no reason it can't appeal to critics and be a horror film. It's it, The Witch is a fucking masterpiece, too. There, there are no bad A24 movies. <laughs> I may slightly argue with you on that, but at the same time, I will say there aren't that many. There are, like, enough on, like, maybe one hand I could say that are genuinely bad at all. And even those that I'm not the hugest fan of are also ones that, like you said, are at least interesting in their own weird yeah. way. Um, and we'll get into that. But we're covering two movies today that uh, definitely sort of, um, I would argue, more on the good side, even with our bad pick. We'll get into that a bit. Because uh, the bad pick that we ended up picking at the end of our last episode was Swiss Army Man from 2016. And the good pick was A Ghost Story from 2017. So sort of right in there big sweet spot of them just like really hitting the ground running with yeah. like so much of their stuff um uh, and we'll go ahead and start uh, discussing both those films but we'll first start off with uh, swiss army man this is crazy i thought you were dead am i dead i don't think so you're talking you're special you're special we sang and we danced and it was beautiful Don't, don't be afraid. So, Swiss Army Man uh, came out in 2016, June 24th, 2016, directed by uh, Daniel Scheidner and Daniel Kwan, who are credited as the Daniels, as a directing <laughs> duo here. Um, and previous to this, had received great acclaim for the Turn Down for What music video, which I'm not besmirching because that's a great music video. <laughs> It's the best. It rules. And you can see a lot of that sort of weird burst of creative energy coming out of this movie. Um, Though, I will say, like, this was um, Adam's bad pick, which he hadn't seen the movie before. um, But he had heard some mixed reception. Admittingly, the first time I ever heard anything about this movie was when it premiered in Sundance earlier in 2016. Where um, I just heard this, like, hey, there's this movie with Harry Potter in it that has him as a farting corpse. And, like, audiences walked out in droves at Sundance. (laughs) <laughs> Which really made me like, I am so curious to see what this is. Yeah. Da- Daniel Radcliffe, can we just briefly touch on what a weird career that dude has had? We should, but let's briefly at least yeah. talk about the premise of this movie, if you maybe haven't okay. heard of it. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Daniel Radcliffe's in the movie, but he's not the main character. The main character is Paul Dano, um, who plays a guy who's stuck on an island, and he's been there for several months, it seems, and he's about to commit suicide. And he just wants to end it all when all of a sudden he sees a corpse off the shore that has washed up and he tries to bring him back to life. And it's like, Oh no, this guy's clearly dead. Then the corpse starts farting. It starts uh, <laughs> farting quite a bit. And then he's like, you know what? This is just weird. I'm going to commit suicide anyway. And then he keeps hearing this corpse farting. And then it starts slightly propelling itself outward into the ocean. He's like, wait, I can use this corpse as a jet ski. 
And he does. He freaking harnesses that corpse and starts, like, riding its farts all the way to shore on that jet ski, but he's stuck in the middle of the woods still when he ends up getting to shore. And he starts basically talking to this corpse out of desperation because he has no one else. And that corpse starts to talk back to him. And he calls it Manny, and he starts sort of teaching it the ways of life while also Paul Dano also starts revealing a bit more about his sort of issues that happen in his actual life. Now he doesn't have a lot of friends or much of a romantic kindred interest to speak with. And uh, the movie has a lot of interesting creative energy from there. And um, if you can get past the part early on where this movie goes into wackadoo territory of a corpse being used as a farting, propelling jet ski, um, you might find an interesting little movie about uh, sort of um, loneliness and finding a kinship with somebody, even if it is a farting corpse played by Harry Potter. Yeah, it arguably is one of the most creative films, I've, I feel like, in a long time. And the fact of, like, everything in the film feels handmade to a certain extent like it feels as trashy as it can be while also feeling kind of like a homemade birthday card getting it from from like a child <laughs> like down to the right. fact that everybody poops is written in shit on a bible they found what i can definitely say is there's no other movie quite like Swiss Army Man. There's, you can't really compare this to much other cinema in any regard. And that's what makes it special. It's a movie that, depending on how you approach it, it's either a movie about a creepy incel, it's a movie about uh, a man going crazy, a movie about love, a movie about friendship, a movie about fucking adventure. Like, everything that could be encapsulated is. <laughs> well, no, I think it's a movie about very much all of those things. And I think what's what's so interesting about sort of the Paul Dano character is admitting that he does creepy things, but the movie, I don't think, is shying away from that necessarily. The movie Not at all. ends up confronting that with its climax, which admittingly, I loved this movie the first time I saw it. I have a few more quibbles with it that have a lot to do with that climax, um, which we'll get to, I guess, as we keep going along in the discussion here. But I think the movie is very conscious of the fact that, like, Paul Dano is someone who you can empathize with, but at the same time, you don't totally forgive. And even Paul Dano kind of knows that at the same time. I think Paul Dano is just, like, one of the more interesting sort of protagonists in the subgenre that I think we can definitely call uh, sad white boy movies. Yes! Um, this is, it's very much a sad white boy movie, which is basically a, a, a young white male who's just like, oh my god, my life just is so bad, and it's so rough, nobody loves me, I want to fuck somebody, but I just can't you know, connect with anybody. Um, and admittingly, 90% of the time that comes off is like, oh, here's the smallest violin. <laughs> I got another A24 <laughs> movie moonlighting to show you, <laughs> you fucking piece of shit. Or something like that. Like, you know, this could easily have been like a Zach Braff movie in the worst yes. case scenario. <laughs> um, but what, what do you think kind of separates it in this case, especially with that Paul Dano character? One, I think, and, and you and I kind of were messaging about the, uh, coded gay elements of of the story i think that gives it a little more nuance than just another one of those like oh i'm a you know 20 something guy and also i think the fact the film like you said does call him out a lot on his behavior uh really adds to the fact that he you're not supposed to look at Hank, you may see elements of Hank where you connect with him or you understand what's going on, but you're not supposed to like Hank. He's not a very likable protagonist. 
Not necessarily, no. I do also like the fact that his name is Hank Thompson. He's a guy trapped on an island. Why? Switch the names around. It's Tom Hanks trapped on an island. Holy shit! (laughs) A24 only makes masterpieces! (laughs) This is my favorite remake, and many is the best version of Wilson, which, to bring up what you were talking about, we we should definitely talk Daniel Radcliffe in this movie. Yes. Um, What's what's so interesting, you mentioned, obviously, we all know him as Harry Potter. We grew up with him, especially us, as, like, Harry Potter, boy who lived, all that other stuff. And, yeah. you know, when you watch those movies, you figure, okay, him, Emma Watson, and Rupert Grint. Emma Watson's totally going to be the one that just has the hugest possible acting career after these movies. She's going to be, like, a big star, everything like that. Danny Radcliffe's probably going to be, like, at fucking fan conventions, and Rupert Grint's <laughs> going to smoke weed all the time. One of those yeah. came true. I've seen that firsthand because I went to South by Southwest once and he was high as a motherfucking kite, Rupert Grint. Um, he was, literally, I was just like going by like the concession stand. That dude was high as fuck. Fucking king energy. <laughs> which, which, look, if you made all that money off Harry Potter, probably go for the Rupert Grint role of just yeah. like, hey, I'm just going to be chill and I'm going to have an ice cream truck and I'm going to yeah. do British TV shows. Like, sure. What a fucking G. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> but but then Emma Watson had like a few like bigger stars. You mentioned Bling Ring. You mentioned a few other things. Things, but she weirdly kind of went more into like her feminist route in a way that yeah, I respect. You know, she got a college education. She's standing up for women's rights, and I we respect all that. But then Radcliffe just decided, you know what? I'm going to keep making movies, but I'm going to make every weird decision I can because I have fuck you money. And yeah. God bless him for it because he has done yeah. such interesting things with his career since. Dude, fucking horns, guns right. akimbo just came out. Hell, he even played a fucking magician again in fucking uh, Now You See Me Too. This is very much a role that, like, I'm sure if he had any agent who actually told him what not to do, they would be like, tear the script up, put it, <laughs> burn it, and then burn the ashes again. <laughs> we must never speak of this script. Right, right, but I just love the fact that, especially he was so committed to this part, because they had, like, a dummy version of man they designed to do like do all this other stuff and he's like nope i don't want to use this unless it might threaten my life if i do this <laughs> like he wanted he wanted to be in as much of the movie as possible and i think that's a big testament to what works about because like manny the, the literal title is that manny becomes sort of this swiss army character that works for like oh he can like crack nuts with his uh his teeth or he can like shoot out things with his mouth or he can like spurt out you know um like water from his mouth or like uh, just all this other stuff the great creative things to use to like make Manny, a multi-purpose tool, basically, Um, and he commits the physicality in such a way, like, this is a phenomenal physical performance in any way, like, you know, it's like, oh, it's a farting corpse, regardless of that, few people can, like, do any of these things with their body, and it's such an incredible, masterful thing, just whether he's staying completely still like a corpse in a believable way, or he's, Mm -hmm. like, that point where he starts actually standing up and moving around, almost like a weird zombie, it's incredible to see. It's it's really cool, and I always wondered how, like, what kind of camera tricks or whatever they were doing, that scene where he's, like, standing up on his own that first time, and it's it's so incredibly janky looking, and I, I love it. it. Everything about Manny, down to his fucking weird little face, where, like, one eye just seems constantly, like... A little more closed than the other one. It's adorable. Like Manny is an adorable corpse. He's a corpseable. 
Yes, I love it. What I really love about him, too, is just not even just, like, that visual way, also just in the way of the story. He's such a fascinating character where he's definitely so much of, like, all the anxieties that Paul Dano has are pretty much put on to Manny. Manny is pretty much all things to the Hank character in terms of, like, he's um, a young child he's raising. He's potentially a lover. He's all this other stuff in a way that that sounds creepy when I just said it, and I realized I probably shouldn't have stated it that way. <laughs> but... Um, when it, the point is, like, Manny feels like he's not just a multi-purpose tool in terms of, like, the general Swiss Army thing, but also yeah. in terms of, like, how he can be used as space, like, almost like one of those um, supportive uh, robot dogs that, like, people have for PTSD. Manny yeah. is that for Hank, pretty much at yeah. every level. Manny is basically a blank slate, and... Hank is just putting all these things into Manny, and some of them are super positive and really great things to, for Manny to know, and other things are not positive, but Manny doesn't even realize they're not positive. He's he's innocent. <laughs> right, and what I love so much is also the way that he they turn things that are like silly, like awkward jokes of Manny not understanding things into very sweet moments later on, like the whole thing about... Um, Hank talks about at one point the fact that, like, oh, I don't masturbate that much because it reminds me of, like, conversation I had with my mom. She died shortly after I had, like, a conversation with my dad about masturbation. And then she's like, oh, so when you masturbate, you think about your mom. No, that's not what I'm saying, Manny. That's not what it is. Like, it's a cute, <laughs> funny gag there. And then later on, yeah. that turns into something where Manny's just like, well, you know what? I have a friend named Hank, and he just feels bad about wanting to masturbate because of something that happened in his past. And I want him to be happy because he's my friend. And it's like, oh, that's... That's so sweet, even though you don't have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. It's so cute. <laughs> yeah, it's adorable. So I think also it works for sort of Hank to get out a lot of stuff about his own issues. Like, I think even you mentioned the gay angle. I didn't even think about this until this particular watch, but there's a lot of scenes where Manny sort of initially sees this, uh, his phone. Hank has a phone that he keeps, like, in a plastic bag to keep someone alive because the battery's dying. And the wallpaper yeah. is of this girl who he saw on the bus a lot and took awkwardly creepy pictures of, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She shows up later in the movie. But um, Manny at one point sees this picture, and she's like, I'm so infatuated with her. I just gotta recreate this, you know, feeling of, like, seeing her on the bus like you did. And they create a makeshift bus, which is amazing. I love all the scenes on the makeshift bus. It looks so yes. great. It's wonderful. But then he... Uh, Hank comes in and plays that part, Mary Elizabeth Winstead character of uh, Sarah, and yeah. he's dressed up a lot in, like, you know, a wig and a dress and all this other stuff, and he feels weirdly so much more comfortable at that point inside yeah. the dress that I'm almost just like, is this almost like a secret, like, he's realizing that he might be trans story in its yeah. own way that I thought was really interesting? Because he's very much just like, I'm really unhappy. Hank is super unhappy with his life, but he can't quite place it. It's almost like that could be one thing. It could be several other things. But I think the movie yeah. opens like enough up to interpretation about Hank as a character where that could be one interesting reading of it. Yeah, and, and even his response, like, he comes out and he feels initially kind of, you know, just because he's self-deprecating, he's like, this is stupid. And Manny just immediately replies, you're beautiful! And Hank responds just in the biggest smile. He's like, really? Like, it's not even... It was just a sweet moment, and it absolutely could work as, as queer cinema. It's not in a way where, like, some movies do that, where it's, like, vague enough, but, like, it could be this, this, or that, and that, and you're kind of like, oh, is this movie not really have any direction to it? Whereas I think this movie's very much about somebody who doesn't know about the direction in their life, but is exploring yeah. so much through, like, the positive of this Manny character, also just the creativity of 
so much of the set design where like a big thing that um he kind of does hank does is like oh you know i want to show manny about our society and our world so i'm gonna start by making little models out of trash in the woods and those models just like increase and grow to where he has like almost a little society made of weird fabric trash and shit <laughs> yeah. and it's almost like this weird like swiss family robinson world of just like assembled trash together that fits the movie perfectly because Hank feels like a somebody who's been tossed out by society, and now he's created his own weird mirror version of society that the movie always points out, this is kind of weird, but also at the same time, it's expressing at least some kind of creativity that this guy has that he just probably hasn't had an outlet to express. Yeah, it's it feels like Hank needed this. <laughs> and and it, as fucked up as it sounds, Hank just needed to go into the woods with his boys and... Uh, and just make some fucking arts and crafts and have his boys with him. Right, of course, and his boys being the, the corpse that he found yeah. out there. Yeah. Um, but I think it's just also such a testament to the two Daniels here, who do such a great job of especially like creating this weird kind of world within a world, but also do so many great things of like really bending the world with like the, the editing in this movie. I love mm-hmm. how much you get sort of like things flashing of like Manny like there's a point where him and Manny like are submerged in water they like fall from a little bridge and um they like see each other in the water and then like things flash where it almost looks like oh it's Sarah but then oh it's just uh Hank in the dress and wig everything just like keeps flashing around and around before they have their interesting little kiss moment um then followed by of course them propelling themselves out of the water through Manny's farts once again um, the, the power flatulence, really. Just the, that's a, that's a, just another weird thing. Like these guys managed to also make like flatulence a really interesting metaphor about keeping yourself like unexpressed. Where it's just like there's a point where I think Manny has like such a, a line that's like so on its level, just stupid crass, but then has the actual hidden meaning to it. Where it's just like, how can I trust somebody who can't who holds in their farts? How we keep our inner selves put in because we don't feel like society would actually embrace us in any way yeah great line you know how can i trust my friend if he if he is afraid to fart in front of me and you know it makes me feel these feelings and i I don't know if i like these feelings (laughs) that he just keeps going on and on about feelings and and for it to inspire that much depth from a fart is is kind of genius it's it's taking the most crass elements that you could possibly put into a film and giving it a really sweet and human silver lining within it yeah it's just the bummer is like expressing any of this to people who have not seen this movie or seen a trailer about yeah. like oh what's a good movie i sh- you would recommend that's not like on netflix right now thomas oh the swiss army man which is about a mo- where like paul dano meets a farting corpse and they become friends and then they kiss and then they keep going <laughs> and it's just anybody would be like okay i'm not that's that's cool that's that's <laughs> great buddy <laughs> that sounds like a good movie on paper like it sounds so stupid <laughs> Yeah, but just do what I do. Whenever I recommend an A24 movie to anyone, I don't tell them shit. I tell them the title, maybe a star, that's it. Fucking go watch the movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's true, that makes more sense to do. Especially in this case. Um, Yeah, definitely in this case. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But but yeah, um, so 
we should, I guess, get into the the point where um, Hank and Manny end up reaching civilization. They run into specifically the house of the Mary Elizabeth Winstead Sarah character, um, and a lot of these things come to fruition and revealed about like, oh, you took these photos of me on the bus and all this other stuff. His father, who's been sort of an absentee person in his life, comes. Sort of everything culminates in this particular like climax of um, him reaching civilization again, and Manny also is completely like turned off and nobody can see him do his fantastic things. How do you feel about that sequence, and especially how it kind of like sort of posits a lot of the themes and sort of punctuates everything from here to the ending? When I first saw it, it really caught me off guard. Once they revealed she was just, you know, a girl on the bus he was creepily taking photos of, I expected it to just end there. And then once it got to the point of him actually being face-to-face with her, I'm like, oh, okay, so the movie's just going to reveal... You know, it was Manny was all in his head. He he is just a fucking crazy person. Okay. And then for for Manny to come back alive through the power of farts, just to show everyone he really was alive, is a moment that is so confounding and illogical and beautiful at the same time. <laughs> That moment, the particular ending of the movie, I think, really sells it, because it's been a movie this whole time about, like, you know, logic leaps and just kind of embracing the weird creativity that you have inside yourself, um, even when other people find it weird. I think that definitely works. I will say that it is kind of, it's a it's a bit weirder when you have, like, sort of Manny and him, like, coming to face with, like, some of these people, like, even the daughter of Mary Elizabeth Winstead. There's a weird moment where, we didn't mention this, but uh, Manny learns how to get erections, and they end up being used as a compass, um, and he tries to do this in front of the little daughter of Mary Elizabeth Winstead, which is really creepy <laughs> on a lot of levels. The fact that, like, everybody ends up coming in on this, like, especially when his dad comes in, and you still yeah. have this shot of, like, the ambulance and him kind of, like, trying to skirt away from his dad's vision as he, the dad thinks, oh, my son is the corpse that's inside of there, not Manny, and he's, like, yeah. so upset about it. Um, I, I was kind of, like, at that point, like, all right, are we kind of getting, like, a bit too cathartic <laughs> in terms of, like, oh, his dad just happens to, like, have been at this particular moment at this time and all this other stuff. It feels a bit much to me, necessarily, but I do agree that I think a lot of that is wiped from the moment you get, like, them on the shore and he's about to be arrested and the fart happens, and then Manny ends up farting, propelling himself, and I think, in a very underrated turn from Mary Elizabeth Winstead, her, what the fuck is, like, the purest way of expressing the weirdness of this ending. She's just like, yeah. what? <laughs> her, her face is just absolutely confused by the whole matter of, of the film. And it's, it's the perfect summary for the film, too. While we're talking about everyone watching Manny drive away, how fucking great is that dad smiling and, like, nodding at his son. Well, because it works, because, like, the whole, like, relationship that's expressed by Hank with his father is very much like, oh, he's a no-nonsense, serious person who kind of raised me in a cold way. And then to see him kind of crack up about something so stupid as, like, a farting corpse propelling itself like a jet ski is, it it is weirdly touching in its own way. There's so much, really, to say about, you know, this movie that's so weird and so odd that, like, even with those issues I have with, like, that climax, there's no denying this is such, like, a creative, fantastic little movie that just needs to kind of be seen and really could only happen from a studio like an A24. That's a big yeah. thing. It's like, no other, like, even Anna Perinina, like, Megan Ellison would be like, I'm not spending my inheritance on this. What the <laughs> fuck is this? 
Yeah, no other studio would take a chance on a fucking farting corpse movie. I don't know if A24 would even do it, because, like, this is even, like, right before they won Best Picture with Moonlight. I don't know if they would even do that now. Because, like, has there been a movie since with Starring Man that comes even close to the weirdness that they've done? I don't think so. I mean, I, I when it comes to just pure crazy shit... Something like a uh, like a Under the Silver Lake jumps out to me, or a Climax, but neither of those are at the level of something like a Swiss Army Man. This movie is just bath salts. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way I can think to describe it. It's like, everything else is like a lot of coke or LSD. This is fucking bath salts. Yeah, like, even one of the other directors here, the um, Daniel Sherbert, uh, would go on to direct uh, The Death of Dick Long last year. Um, and Daniel... Yeah. It, it, that sure is a movie. I'd give that movie credit for, in a similar vein to this movie, it kind of takes the sillier premise of its concept and really drags to at least an interesting dramatic way, um, but it doesn't have that same visual creativity. I think, based on that, him being the only director on that, um, it, maybe a lot of this sort of weird creativity came from more like a Daniel Kwan, which yeah. he hasn't directed a feature since this. I would love to see him do that. I'd love to see what he, just him on his own is like. It's kind of like when Neville Dean and Taylor separated... Um, and you saw, like, Taylor do, like, some fun shit, like Mom and Dad, and then Neville Dean did bullshit. <laughs> so you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Here's where that divides up. Maybe yeah. we're just, like, I would, I would be curious to see Quan direct his own feature after this. Um, but, but yeah, I just think we we may never get another movie like Swiss Army Man. And that's enough praise for this, especially A24, to have been like, you know what, we're gonna greenlight this weird fucking movie that has a pretty unlikable protagonist, a farting corpse is your most likable character, <laughs> and a lot of just weird shit. It's one of the weirdest, most unique films you can find. And it's a movie that espouses, like, a really true sentiment. If you don't know Jurassic Park, you don't know shit. True that. Which I do love the Shadow Puppets, we didn't mention that. The little Shadow Puppets. Oh, yeah! So shadow Puppets! <laughs> or, or even, like, the, the, that's part of, like, a big montage with the song Montage. The music in this movie is incredible. I yes. love how you get, like, so many moments that feel like they're big, rousing musical moments, but they're done with, like, very simplistic lyrics, or even just, like, weird, like, general mouth noises that are, like, onomatopoeias. <laughs> like, the beginning with, like, Paul Daniel. It's weirdly, like, that's, I think that's what sells that opening of, like, the, the corpse farting thing and all this other stuff, is the music kind of rising up in Paul Dano, almost starting a musical number with it. That's the thing, yeah. is, like, the big, creative, like, silly moments almost feel like musical numbers in this movie. Yeah, the the popcorn song is a banger, and it sticks with you days later. Yeah, and it literally is like, I, I heard that song in the trailer, I'm like, oh, this is such a great song, and then you hear it in the movie, and the lyrics are literally just like, oh, describing what's going on. Like, yeah. we killed a raccoon, we're popping the popcorn, we're doing this now. <laughs> it's replaced the uh, South Park montage song for me, it's best montage song. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. Um, I pretty much expressed my final thoughts. Do you have anything to add, Ryan, before we move on to our next feature? Uh, no, I just, it, again, A24 makes no bad movies, and Swiss Army Man is among one of their weirdest, so definitely, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Yes, and uh, we'll get to our next, also very weird feature, uh, but first, here's an ad for an ESO so you can queue up right after our podcast. Howdy! This year, the Earth Station One podcast will experience its favorite geek-out moment with episode number 500. That's over nine years of nerdy pop culture reviews, interviews, and con reports. Join the celebration with Mike and Mike each week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite media player. We can also be found all over social media or at ESONetwork.com. Peace. Peace. And we're done. We're done.
All right, now let's get to feature number two, A Ghost Story. When I was little and we used to move all the time, I'd write these notes. Things I wanted to remember so that if I ever wanted to go back, there'd be a piece of me there waiting. What is it you like about this house so much? History? So a ghost story came out the next year, um, July 7th, 2017, from writer-director David Lowry, um, who is, I think, one of the best up-and-coming filmmakers right now, in all honesty. I think I've praised him before on this podcast, but he has made movies like Ain't Them Body Saints and the Peach Dragon remake, which I would easily say is the best of the modern Disney remakes of their older properties by, like, a long shot. And then this movie and also The Old Man and the Gun, he's about to do that movie The Green Knight with Dave, yep. Dave, Dave Patel, which I'm really excited for. Um, and uh, this movie, it's a very sparse little movie, in which uh, there's only two sort of major characters. You have uh, Casey Affleck as C, and then Rooney Mara as M. And uh, they're a couple who we see are married early on in the film. Um, and he's a musician, and he feels kind of distant from her as they've moved to this house that's sort of like a bit more in the sticks in Texas, and she's trying to find a different house that feels a bit more urban and feels like she can be around other people. Um, and then C dies tragically in a car accident. We see him go to the morgue and how M is very sad about it. And then uh, we stay on the shot of him covered by a sheet. Then that sheet gets up. And then he <laughs> starts walking around in that sheet with two little holes, looking like, you know, um, a kid dressed up as a ghost. And uh, it's about his exploration through the afterlife and through eons of time and through a lot, a lot in only 90 minutes of runtime. Yep. It's a Terrence Malick film just on super fast forward. <laughs> That's true. If you played that like 2x speed. <laughs> yeah. It's insanely beautiful and quiet and it's a lot of watching he's just standing there watching all this shit and it's it's 90 minutes of him standing there just like fuck time really blows it's it's pretty much i think i said this at the time i still stand by it uh, for the several times i've watched this movie since it's a movie about the horror of observation sort of the usual horror movies you get about like dying and coming back as a ghost is like oh you, the, the afterlife ghosts are gonna get you or you're gonna be haunted by some other being or any of this other stuff this movie's really about like well you might have the power to like move objects or stuff like that you've seen in other horror movies but at the same time it's very futile and it's this existence in this weird purgatory of, like, seeing your loved one, especially, like, in the case of the Rooney Mara character, um, go through the process of grief, and yeah. then slowly, even worse for you as somebody who's observing, getting past you and moving yeah. on. Which is, like, so, like, existentially mortifying <laughs> to realize. <laughs> it's just like, oh, man. Like, initially, you're like, oh, man, I'm so bummed. She's so sad. She's eating pie. We'll get to that in a second. And then... You see her actually just, like, accept the fact that he's dead and then move away from the house and he doesn't see her again until time loops back around, <laughs> which is, like, so existentially, like, mind-boggling in a way that, like, it really makes you just think about, like, the idea of, like, being an observer in that particular point is just, like, so sad. <laughs> it's a yeah. deeply sad movie, but in a really beautiful way. And it's not just like it's happening to him only. There's there's another ghost in a nearby house who is also doing the same thing. And it's, it's just so fucking sad. 
Well, especially because they communicate to each other through subtitles, no actual speaking, where they're just like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm just waiting for somebody. Oh, oh who are you waiting for? I don't remember. <laughs> it's just, that, that's even worse. It's just like, oh my god, you're yeah. on this mission of like waiting for somebody who you haven't even completely lost track of who they are. That's just like, it's the weird thing about like the eternity of being a ghost inside of like a house, especially because like the whole thing was that uh, the Casey Affleck character loved this house. He just wanted to keep staying there and he wasn't ever really descriptive about it. He kind of felt like when the scenes where we see him alive, like a ghost kind of observing in his own way, but in a way where he just felt kind of passive and felt like he couldn't really open up to people. And it is almost kind of like the horror of being trapped in that kind of shy, awkward perspective and realizing, that, like, oh, there's no chance of you being able to open up, though, in this afterlife, where you're just constantly, permanently observing. Especially, you're attached to this house, but this house is just a place. This house can be destroyed, this place can be mulled over, and you'll have nothing to show for it. Um, it's a really fun, uplifting movie, much like Swiss Army Man, <laughs> as we were talking about. It's, it's a feel-good movie that you bring the kids, they'll love it. It's a cute little ghost boy. It's like Casper. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's a kids movie. There, like, there's kids in it. <laughs> well, that's so god. There are kids in it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they all and they all live in their grade. Nothing bad happens to them. Yeah, again, like Swiss Army Man, and it's weird to say because this is a much more traditional and easy to describe film than Swiss Army Man, but at the same time, there's so much more emotional weight behind it that is hard to convey than something like a Swiss army man. Cause Swiss army man, you can boil down to like a buddy movie with a corpse. It's weakened at Bernie's the reboot. Basically. Come on. That's yeah, all we yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this is like, you know, Oh yeah. We're going to just have a quick little, you know, gallivant while we meditate on time and existence. And it's, it's just going to be so fucking fun and joyful. Well, I think that's what really, like, I really loved about it, especially when I watched in the theater, is the fact that it's a movie that definitely, you could, like, easily describe it, but I think it's just as, like, unsellable to an yes. audience as Swiss Army Man is. And especially, I knew that when I actually saw this in the theater, and it wasn't a full theater, it was about half-packed, um, including myself and two other friends who were there, and the scene where Rooney Mara eats a pie happens. And this is sort of, like, the infamous thing about this movie. Unfortunately, like, sort of the thing that pressed people, like, latched onto because they're like, uh, how do we describe this movie? Uh, the Rooney Mirror ate a pie! <laughs> because <laughs> in, in the actual scene, it's about a five-minute scene where Rooney Mirror gets this pie after her husband has died from the realtor lady who comes by, um, and she starts eating it, and then she starts aggressively eating it, and then she starts sadly eating it, and then she vomits, and it's portrayed in mostly one take. It's like a couple of takes where like it's her at the table and it cuts to her sitting on the ground eating this pie for about a solid five minutes, unbroken. And at that point in my screening, um, most of the people walked out of the theater. <laughs> that it's sort of it's this woman that's definitely it's very upsetting. It's just like it's this yeah. woman totally completely lost in her life and just eating so much pie to the point where you're just like Rooney, you're gonna get sick. You shouldn't do it. You're a very skinny lady. You can't handle that much pie. I loved showing this to my dad because he had never seen it, and I've been showing him A24 movies. And when that scene began, dad looked over to me. He's like, she's so skinny. Where does she put all that? And then and then as soon as she throws up, my dad just looks at me and goes, I called it. <laughs> <laughs> 
but one of my favorite elements of that that pie scene and and one of the things that like gets me through it whenever it gets a little too long for me is just looking in the background at the ghost <laughs> just standing awkwardly i even listened to the commentary and one of the i believe it's the the set designer even said like the first time i watched this i completely forgot the ghost was there until she got up to vomit because <laughs> yeah. he almost like that's what works so much about the costume and the fact that it's like it's a silly thing of like oh it's a guy with a sheet and the two eyes like oh is this charlie brown thing what the fuck is this but that image is like so initially kind of like humorous to see just like oh it's a guy in a ghost outfit that's charming i think it's so sort of like existentially sad like he's this almost forgotten halloween costume that's still around it's, like, such a bummer to see, almost. But he almost blends into the background in a perfect way. Like, he's almost, like, part of the drapes when you yeah. see him. Just, like, kind of pop up there, and he almost, like, completely fits in. Or, like, a, a really beautiful moment. Speaking of, like, music from last time. Uh, the song, I Get Overwhelmed. Oh. Um, and there's this, it's a song that, in-universe, Casey Affleck actually um, performs um, and, like, writes. And then he's, like, showing Rooney Mara this, and she puts on the headphones and starts listening to it. And it flashes between her in the past doing that, then her in the present, like, laying down and, like, remembering this time at the same time like she had with her husband. And yeah. it's so, such a beautiful, tragic sequence that I cry over every time yeah. I see this movie. Especially yeah. the moment where, like, she reaches out and she almost touches the ghost, who is clearly not there. It's so, yeah. so heartbreaking. <laughs> God, her fucking hand so close to that sheet, and it's like, you just are screaming at the screen just a little further in that song. Like, I, I fucking love that song. I have it on my iPod, and I listen to it all the time. It's such a sad song. No, and it's, it's, a, it's a great song, just about, like, really that, that same kind of, like, regret and inability to like really express yourself it's pretty much it is a song for introverts this movie is very much just like about somebody who might feel introverted in almost their worst case scenario of dying and being further introverted but not having a chance to even speak it just yeah. does such a great job that i think there's so much great silent acting like green mirror in that scene when you think about it she's listening to this music and it's just a shot on her listening but she can't overly express herself even visually it just has to be like her thinking and acting and just only like bobbing her head or moving her head around and it says so much in that shot like it's such a testament to like why she's a phenomenal actress in that one shot and even like when we keep cutting over to her like almost catatonic but reaching out on the floor like you just see so much of a difference even between those two versions of the character in that one montage yeah also going back to how quiet this film is like there's moments where these these two characters do fight and it never feels dramatized either it always feels like a real fight they take pauses where they just kind of like take a minute and and catch themselves and there's just this kind of prolonged pain it's a perfect song choice. It's a perfect performance from both of them. And it's just a very emotionally r- real film. You will feel everything in this movie. Well, no, right. And I, I don't want to also say this is just like, oh, it's just a very like sad movie necessarily. It's very much that. But also I think it's a very creative movie in terms of like the horror elements that I'm talking about. Um, like yeah. as someone who like grew up loving like horror movies like a poltergeist or especially like these ghost haunting houses movies um i think the especially the section where after Rooney mirror moves out and then 
like in the quick flash of like all of a sudden a new family has moved in. Casey Affleck is like dealing with as this ghost and how he just, dis- that's when he discovers he sort of has these vague powers to be able to move things or like make the lights break and stuff like that. It shows that like, this is somebody expressing a lot of these thematic sadnesses through genre in a way that's so smart to me. Like you yeah. can tell this is somebody like who would watch like a conjuring two. They even mentioned the commentary conjuring two as an influence on some of these sequences. Um, mm-hmm. of, like, people being spooked out and stuff like that. Um, and you can tell that it's very much like, okay, what is the true tragedy of being a ghost stuck in a house? And how even expressing yourself through, like, throwing plates around shit like that is a brief, futile thing that comes off as more of, like, a depression-fueled anger spasm of sorts. Like, just, like, really letting out a lot of emotion in an existentially terrifying situation. I think that's so smart. I think it's such an amazing way of using, uh, like, a deconstruction of genre to express a true human sad emotion that I don't think a lot of filmmakers can manage to do. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, what do you think uh, about the aspect ratio? Do you think it hurts the film? Do you think it adds to the film? Because, for those who don't know, the aspect ratio is... Uh, a lot smaller than your typical one. Um, it, right, it's... and aspect ratio basically is like how the movie sort of shows cases itself. Like, usually the traditional thing is like widescreen, where there's like black yes. bars at the bottom, and you kind of see like a long rectangular image that shows off everything. And movies go around that some, you know, like old TV has full screen. This is sort of closer to that, where it's like four by three, which is like yeah. the way like old silent films kind of look, and like TV shows kind of used to look back in the day. Uh, I was just going to ask, do you think it, it adds to the film, or do you think that it's it's more distracting than not? Um, I think it's an incredibly smart choice to me, because what I think works about it is, like I mentioned the whole aspect of Casey Affleck's ghost costume, kind of being like an old, worn-out Halloween costume that's stuck there. In that yeah. way, this it feels like you're watching a family album full of Polaroids being like pre- presented at 24 frames per second. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, the only reason I asked, I had a friend who felt like they didn't really understand why it was in that aspect ratio. They were like, why isn't the whole film, like, normal? And I was like, dude, it's just, it looks old. It, it looks very much worn out old, very much in the in that way. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you more about, there's, most of the movie is dialogue-less. Like, it's mostly yes. just Casey Affleck kind of walking around. The biggest dialogue sequence we get from any character is uh, there's a certain point where um, after, you know, that family's left, there's a party going on at the house uh, that has several people, including Kesha, <laughs> who briefly <laughs> pops up. And you're like, what the fuck's Kesha doing here yes. at this party that's playing her own song? Um, but then uh, uh, William Oldham... Um, plays this guy who's credited as a prognosticator, who at this party they're kind of talking about, like, I'm thinking about writing a novel, but I don't know if I should. And he starts talking about, like, well, you know, think about it like this. If you write the novel, then those pages will burn. And then if you write a song, you know, people might sing it. He goes on this big diatribe about basically how, you know, you can pour yourself into, like, whatever town or whatever is going on, but ultimately, like, it might continue once Earth uh, you know, goes through several different changes, but ultimately, once, like, all of mankind blows up, maybe that sort of desire for it to keep lasting isn't that necessary, and life is more about kind of living in the now. Um, do you feel that sequence, kind of stopping the movie dead, is just presenting the thematics in a very simple way, or do you think that sort of is still necessary for the rest of the movie to play out? I think it can be both. Uh, I think that it's definitely there for, like, the dumber people who don't get the film. That that whole like 
sequence is just him telling you what the movie's about. If you don't have uh, an appreciation for that scene, I totally get it. Because there's a lot of people who have complained that that scene is is a bit unnecessary. But I think what you get out of like the five-minute pie scene and what you get out of that are kind of yin and yang. The, the pie scene, you can get all that same information just watching her eat pie and watching him watch her. Everything else is about this this feeling of non-permanence, this feeling of not being able to make a difference, that everything is fucking meaningless. If you don't want to read that much into it, it's there for you too. I personally don't have an issue with the scene. I, I think the movie is really excellent, but I do understand the people who really adamantly hate that scene. Because I am kind of torn because I do sort of feel like if there's any flaw to me with this movie, because spoiler, I think this is one of my favorite A24 movies and I think it's pretty near flawless to me because of its sort of interesting simplicity. I do think that scene does spell out a lot of the themes, but at the same time, it's such a well-written fucking monologue, and that actor is so great. The way that he yeah. expresses all of this is so infatuating, especially the way that he, at one point, um, brings up Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and they start playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony under it, and on paper you tell me that's like, that sounds like bullshit, and then in the movie I'm just like, yes, this is so beautiful. <laughs> Look at him just going and gesticulating <laughs> while that music's playing underneath it. Um, it it's a weird thing. I think it all is also necessary just to kind of like make... Maybe some of the other stuff really sink in later on as he goes through sort of the time loop that happens after a certain point. Yeah. And plus, maybe just to break up kind of the monotony of the images of just like, okay, we've seen this guy in the fucking ghost costume a lot. Let's do something a bit different. From there, this movie gets like existentially sci-fi in such an interesting way of him yeah. seeing as this place, like, you know, his house gets, you know, destroyed and then you know, skyscrapers are built up and then he ends up trying to like basically end it all even though he's a ghost and all this other shit and then he loops back around to like pioneer times when the first settlers were like settling on the land and then those people die and then time keeps progressing again until he's back at the fucking house as he's moving in with his wife. Yeah. The light that shows up behind him and that Casey Affleck kind of acknowledges and then when you realize that that light has been representing the ghost watching them this whole time and that the cycle is just destined to keep repeating over and over again is really fucking sad but it's also this really interesting creative thing like i get the same pleasure out of this that a lot of people get like say a back to the future 2 of like time warps going back and forth over and over again but i think this works on uh, this weird even more interesting existential level of just like you realize that like people go through all this time and, you know, like, with the Pioneer family. Like, you hear her briefly hum a bit of the song, which is so interesting. Um, and there's a tremendous, like, way of saying, oh, wait, this song has been in existence forever. You writing the song, KCF, like, didn't, like, mean a lot necessarily because it's sort of been, like, in existence for so long. And what really mattered for this Pioneer family is, like, them sitting down for dinner and them talking to each other about their dreams and their hopes, even if, like, you know, not too long after that they end up getting horribly murdered and we see their fucking skeletons decompose into the fucking earth which speaking of existential terror just like oh god <laughs> is that all we are it's just fertilizer <laughs> then it kind of brings up those emotions there um but i think it's it's a movie that weirdly is like is 
kind of speaking about things that, like, I don't necessarily totally agree with about, like, I think it's important to, like, you know, make fiction and write, you know, music and novels and all this other stuff, and I think that lasting, to some degree, making people kind of cope with their lives is, like, a worthwhile pursuit. Um, but at the same time, it, I do completely agree with the fact that, like, you can't also let that just dominate your life, and that you do kind of have to, like, learn to, like, be appreciative of, like, what's going on now. It's something that I break on constantly, honestly, all the time. I constantly sort of, like, ignore certain things in my life that I should pay more attention to. But it makes that really human in this movie. I think it makes such a, like, really human, interesting, like, bridge of, like, this sort of existential Terrence Malick-esque movie actually has a real human connection you can tether to, which is honestly an issue I've had with a lot of Terrence Malick movies. I'm not usually a huge fan, just because I think that guy gets up his own butt a lot. Yeah. Um, I think this movie has a danger of going up its own butt at the same time, but I don't think also David Lowry has such a great humanism to him in all of his movies that I think makes them a bit more, like, relatable and emotionally tethering than, say, like, a Malik, who I think is often a bit more cold. Yeah, yeah. Malik, Malik is the ghost, whereas David Lowry is Casey Affleck. Yeah, I do also love the... One, if you're concerned about, like, Casey Affleck being in the movie, don't worry. He's not in the movie too much, actually, in person. And then even then, when he's in person, you kind of get why people would find him to be, like, an asshole. Like, the bit where the ghost sees them moving into the house and he plays with a piano. I'm like, oh, is this the most accurate scene for Casey Affleck, just being a douche to a lady? That makes sense. Uh, it's it's a lot of uh, Casey Affleck just being kind of a piece of shit. Like, he's a bad boyfriend. He's he's not even a particularly good ghost. He He's just... He's just... Casey Affleck. <laughs> and I do love also just the image of the ghost, something we didn't even mention. Like, if you were actually to put, like, a sheet on a person, it wouldn't look like that. Like, yeah. it would actually, like, just kind of, like, droop over and you would see much more of the visage. And so they had to work to, like, kind of remove Casey Affleck a bit more. So they, like, built a helmet underneath him and then, like, an overcoat system that would go under him so it looks like it's kind of puffed out in that perfect way. Which makes the ghost so much more, like, universal. It doesn't have, like, any specific human attachment that would make you think, oh, it's just Casey Affleck. It's like, no, the ghost is anybody, really. Yeah, yeah, we're all gonna be that ghost. Or the other one with the more frilly sheets, which I do love that detail. It has, like, yes. flowery sheets as opposed to Casey Affleck's white sheets. Yeah, I always liked that. I thought, I thought it was cute. They had, like, a nice little flower design on them. And it makes me think, like, so whatever sheets you die in, or whatever sheets they put you in when you die, those just become your sheets? <laughs> That's why you need to change your sheets often, folks. Yeah, everybody, change your sheets. If he's not washing his sheets, he's a fuckboy. Get out of there. Um, well, okay, I guess we can go ahead and get into our final thoughts, because we could also expound a lot about this particular movie. But, Ryan, your final thoughts on The Ghost Story. It's a movie for any time in your life. If you are sad, it will definitely assist you through that. If you're in a breakup, if you're happy, it, it, any time in your life, this movie is really so applicable to em, to where you are emotionally and it's haunting it sticks with you it's it's just a really beautiful and lovely movie yeah i i love this movie quite a bit yeah. um the, the year that i saw it it was right before like just a couple months before i heard sort of had my big sort of experiences with death my first big ones 
Um, and I've gone back to this movie several times since then, and I think it really speaks to a lot of sort of have that hopelessness that you do feel when yeah. you you know you experience something like a death. But it doesn't also like the way we're describing it might sound like oh it's kind of making this feel like an existential nightmare that might make you you feel kind of worse. But I think it almost works. It's just like another thing where it's like this is sort of an experience that everybody goes through. It's a thing that really hurts. It's a thing that can make you feel this sort of existential. But at the same time, even then, the ghost, despite having, like, you know, no quote-unquote agency, does have a goal in the movie of trying to find, like, Remarie's little note that she leaves behind. Which I yeah. love that device. I think that's a great sort of minimal but perfect through line for that movie. Of just, like, he wants people to leave so he can read his girlfriend's love note. Get out of here. <laughs> I gotta read it, guys. Just yeah. get out of my face. And I love the fact that we don't end up seeing what that is. Whatever nonsense. Because, yeah. like, we even, we kind of know because at the beginning, Rina Mary ends up saying, just like, oh, just like poems, sweet nothings, just like small innocuous things. And I love that that is the sort of thing that he's chasing. And I think that really works. Like, if you're going through an experience like that, it's, you can feel all the crushing horrors of, like, the existentialness of, like, oh my god, what comes after your life? What is the meaning of life in any way? If I'm introverted, will I end up losing the people in my life? All this other stuff. It's a movie that ultimately comes to the conclusion that, like, what you should be pursuing isn't that, but the innocuous love notes, or maybe a song, or a novel, or any of these other things like that that kind of make it worth continuing the small details like what really matter and that's like a cliche statement obviously but that's a common thing but i love yeah. the movie expresses that in such a beautiful simple way of just like anybody can ultimately be the ghost searching for a lost love note i think that's such like a beautiful small thing that expounds so much detail like so much of the thread of this movie is that keeping it you know consistent as like all these big existential themes come about it just ends up being about something very simple touching, subtle, beautiful. And I think it's a, this was the movie where I'm like, you know what, David Lowry, no matter what you do, I'm on board. Fucking whatever, give it to me. I'll, I'll watch yeah. fucking anything that you do, dude. This is amazing. <laughs> I was like so blown away by this. And I would definitely recommend, he's one of those guys where it's just like, you know, he's like my new guy I want to attach to and see like everything, especially that trailer for The Green Knight, which is another A24 movie. It looks so fucking good. <laughs> It, it looks, looks really so exciting. great. I'm so excited and pumped for that. And that ends our discussion of our two films, but the show's not over yet, because uh, at the very end we got to pick our uh, next week's episode's uh, films, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but we also have some feedback to share, because every Monday on the Facebook and Twitter page, at Pod, we ask you guys out there about, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite things related to whatever topic we're doing? And man... You guys had a lot to say about A24. <laughs> this is one of our bigger feedback sections for sure. And so, uh, first up, we have James Rodriguez who says, uh, The Farewell and Moonlight are two of my all-time favorite films, and I'm forever grateful to A24 for getting them released upon the world. I'm also a big fan of Free Fire, Hereditary, The Florida Project, and Green Room. I can't say I'm a fan of Life After Beth or Bling Ring, though. Then Shaquille Lambert, previous guest on the show, at Check Excellence, says, Faves, Moonlight, Spring Breakers, Green Room, Uncut Gems, Climax, Black Man San Francisco. Least favorites, uh, The Bling Ring, Free Fire, and Tusk. Uh, Scott Crawford says, A24 is one of those companies, when I see that they're involved, I know I'm in for something special, good or bad. My favorites would have to be Hereditary, The Witch, Black Coat, daughter in midsummer um it's hard for me to choose one that might be bad the only two i can really think of that would be worst are slice and tusk 
Um, Jonathan Habden McHale says, uh, as an owner of their genre candles, I'm an obvious fan of A24. A24 films go beyond the post-slash-elevated horror general audiences that general audiences associate with the company. My faves are Ex Machina, Good Time, The OK Ones with a Disaster Artist and a Ghost Story, and then Bad are Tusk and Dark Places. Scott Johnson says, uh, A24 are certainly some of those exciting filmmakers in the industry right now. Best, uh, The Farewell, The Lighthouse, Lady Bird, Room, and Uncut Gems. Least favorites, uh, Lean on Pete and How to Talk to Girls at Parties. Uh, Casey Gerard says, I find them especially interesting because even their misses tend to be at least neat or have merit. While I don't get anything out of stuff like Life After Beth, Mid-90s, or The Lobster, I don't regret seeing them, and contemporary cinema is definitely made more interesting by their inclusion. Except a most violent year. That movie's incapable of adding anything interesting. Um, and even if they didn't have merit, their good far outweighs their bad. I'm sure there's plenty of people fawning over the likes of Moonlight and Hereditary, so I'd uh, give a shout-out to How to Talk to Girls at Parties, really delightful 80s punk throwback, Last Black Man in San Francisco continuing the Bay Area directors are on a goddamn roll trend, and it comes at night for staying in my brain and slowly getting more and more haunting the more I think about it. Uh, Rachel Hillis says, uh, faves would have to be Midsommar, The Lighthouse, and The Witch. As for least favorites, I don't um, know how in the minority I am, but I wasn't mad for Hereditary. Uh, Ryan Lindley says, Killing of a Sacred Deer and Green Room were awesome. Tuscan Life After Beth were butt. Uh, Amanda Leonard says, Ah, the company that brought us Tusk. I'm so mad I watched that. Mark Anthony King II says, There's plenty of movies to choose from, whether it's Moonlight, Ex Machina, Room, etc. But I would have to say my favorite A24 films are definitely Good Time and Uncut Gems. Least favorite? Well, I don't really enjoy Tusk, and to be honest, I wasn't a fan of The Witch either. Uh, Sarah Sorrentino, at Sarah Sorrentino, on Twitter says, Slice, she just left it at that, so she, it's, I'm not sure if it's good or bad, we'll just say it's the best film she's ever seen in her life. <laughs> um, and then uh, Brian Kane says, uh, It Comes at Night and the Rover are two of my favorite post-apocalyptic movies, the latter being one of the first indications to me that Robert Pattinson might actually be a really talented character actor. Uh, Spooky Bitch at Sailor underscore Molly says, Midsommar, Hereditary, and The Witch are my top three easily. Ex Machina, Green Room, Under the Skin, and The Lighthouse are honorable mentions. I tried to like Tusk, but I couldn't get into it. That's the only A24 movie I've seen that I don't enjoy. And then Josh uh, Schumacher says this, which I think sums up things pretty well. Uh, A24 has been the best response to a market saturated with sequels and reboots. Even if the results uh, they've produced and distributed aren't spectacular, like Tusk, the idea is at the very least original. Uh, the critical acclaim and box office success stories of many of the releases prove that there is a still a market for original ideas in cinema. The best that come to mind are Lady Bird, Hereditary, Ex Machina, The Lobster, and Room. Even while typing out that list, I felt bad for leaving so many movies out that I loved. Yeah. Yep. Really, really on point there, Josh. But now, Ryan, I think we should address uh, the walrus in the room uh, for your theory. About the no bad A24 movies. All right, all right. Mid-90s has problems. <laughs> <laughs> it was really weird when that kid became a walrus. I, I can't believe that happened. Um, but yeah, uh, the most common thread in terms of bad ones was definitely Tusk, which came out in 2014 and was sort of like in that weird experimental phase that we talked about. You know, they were running into some, with some bad people who yeah. kind of, they were like the, sort of their peer pressure friends. Like Kevin Smith gave them like, hey man, why don't you smoke a cigarette? And put Walrus to the Sun just long. Uh, you would probably argue of the movies have actually produced. That's probably the biggest indicator of maybe a bad one. Yeah, but I mean, I wouldn't even say that's Kevin Smith's worst movie. So well, well, no, that, well, that's true. Admittingly, like when they were given the chance to maybe do the follow up, like, oh, hey, you want to produce Yoga Hosts? They're like, no, man, I'm over cigarettes now. <laughs> I don't fucking want any part of that. 
Yeah, so, like, yes, it is objectively not the best A24 movie, and is probably closer to being the worst A24 movie, Uh, but I will say that it's still a director who, you know, as much as love him or hate him, Kevin Smith is a director where people will maybe not be interested, but they will talk about the films he makes. If he comes up to you and you're running a company like A24 that makes your shit. Well, especially in your, if you're in their, your infancy as a company, yes. you want to kind of get like bigger names attached, like draw people to see your movie. Yeah. And at that year, like consider their year at that point, it was uh, obvious child, which is a really funny, cute abortion comedy. I actually very much agree. Really like that one. Yes. Lock, which is a one-man show in a car, which is exquisite. Very good. Very underseen, yes. Well, that was also the year of, before that, they had Enemy, which is the really weird Jake Gyllenhaal, yes. uh, Danny Villeneuve movie, which is very interesting. Yeah. Under the Skin, which is one of their favorites for me. Yeah. Really weird movie. <laughs> um, the Rover, which came out um, around that yeah. time, which I think is, like Brian kind of pointed out, the biggest thing to gleam off is, like, it's the first time you really saw... Robert Pattinson expressed himself differently as, like, a really cool committed character actor that would progress only from there. Um, and Life After Beth, which we've disagreed on here, I agree with a lot of people here, that's my least favorite A24 movie. I, I like that one. I think it's cute. I, I I just think it's it's a horror comedy where I don't fucking laugh once. <laughs> it's, I, I completely laugh free for me when I watch that movie. But you were scared, so the horror works. Fuck you. I mean, I was scared by, like, oh, God, I have to watch more of this? Oh, my God, it's so boring. <laughs> Why are we wasting so many talented actors? Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but, but, uh, but no, A24 only makes masterpieces. Uh, Tusk has problems. Life After Beth probably has problems. I don't see them, though. I think if I had to pick an A24 movie that I was going to really bully, like, but I would rather see people go after shit like A Prayer Before Dawn or something like A Disaster Artist, mid-90s, more of their just real mediocre shit. I mean, I remember liking Disaster Artist. I think we, we, we messaged about this earlier. I think it's it's not the best adaptation necessarily of that particular book. The book is far better. Um, yes. But I still had at least like a bit of fun with, with that one. Simply, it's like B tier Ed Wood, which yes. is still like it's it's still fun in its own way. Um, maybe the amount of James Franco in it might make you not necessarily want to see it. I understand, um, but I do agree that I think with with some of the lesser A twenty four movies, I, like I I spent a lot of time like actually uh, for research um, watching a bunch of the ones I hadn't seen, which is very accessible. Like the movies that we talked about um, today are both on Netflix, and a lot of their movies are on Netflix or Amazon Prime. The ones that aren't on Netflix pretty much are on Amazon Prime, if you uh, want to watch any of them, which we definitely recommend. Um, I I would say that like some of the ones even that were mentioned as bad on here that I kind of disagree with, like I had to talk to girls at parties. I think the movie's delightful in its very weird, messy way. I think it's a very yes. cute little movie. Um, Elle Fanning's a fucking star, and I can't wait yes. to like, continue. Hopefully, she doesn't like kind of do the Dakota thing where she kind of dissipates. Unfortunately, after a certain point, I want her to keep on going. Because uh, she's so funny. That movie has a weird, almost like sort of Rocky Horror aesthetic to its sort of sci fi ness. Yeah. Where basically, if you don't know, the premise is um, this kid in like early 80s, late 70s England um, ends up hanging out with this young American girl who acts really weird. And he's just like, oh, she's American. Turns out she's a space alien. Um, and, from, <laughs> and from there, it's a very cute story. And it's from uh, John Cameron Mitchell, who did H- Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Who... Yes! 
it's a bummer that guy has to make more movies because I think he's quite like an interesting voice. I would like to see you do more stuff. Um, it has a really great supporting turn from Nicole Kidman. I think she's quite delightful in that movie. It's sort of like the aging punk den mother of sorts yes. for all those kids. I think she's quite delightful. Um, and um, I mean, I would, you know, like a, a Locke also I recently saw and Locke is, like you mentioned, it's a one man show where it's Tom Hardy in his car just trying to like melting down over a situation and his whole life's being ruined at the whole time. Um, it's a phenomenal showcase for Hardy alone. It's worth seeing yeah. for that. Um, or even the most violent year I just recently saw, and that's definitely a movie that feels kind of style over substancy, but at the same time, that style is really cool. And more importantly, like how many more hotter couples in cinema could there be than Jessica Chastain and Oscar Isaac? Such a fucking beautiful pair. Um, but what are some more sort of like underrated ones? Because like a bunch of people talk about like the big ones, like Hereditary, The Witch, Moonlight. Like, what are some underrated ones to you that more people should seek out? Well, I always recommend stuff like Hereditary and The Witch as your introduction. Like, if you're going right. to start, those are the most mainstream, basic bitch choices you can go for. Some shit that I think is kind of, like, overlooked, typically, would be something like a Lean on Pete gets really mm-hmm. ignored, which I know someone mentioned in there as being bad, uh, and they're wrong. Um, <laughs> High Life is really great. Yes, uh, very underrated one. Yeah, my, one of my favorite movies of last year, for sure. Yes, High Life is excellent. If you're looking for a really good performance from Ryan Reynolds, uh, Mississippi Grind is really solid. Uh, the Death of Dick Long, uh, which we mentioned earlier, is so fun if you want a creepy coen brothers-esque type you know small town drama movie it's fantastic um i really like you know more quiet films like while we're young uh gloria bell fucking slaps uh 20th century women slow west slow west definitely like i agree with like those last two in particular 20th century women was also my choice was my alternate choice and that's oh, a phenomenal yeah? movie that I'm so surprised got slept on around the Oscars, especially. Annette Benning delivers, like, one of her best performances in that movie. And that's saying a lot, because she's a phenomenal actress. But, like, it's such a great ensemble, and they all do yeah. so well together. It's a really interesting, empathetic movie. It clearly comes from, like, the perspective of somebody who was, like, a young man raised by women. And how, yeah. like, they, they kind of, you know, like, really look back on their childhood and, like, these strong female figures in her in his life. Um, it's so well done. Oh my god. Yeah. And um you know one that like I think got lost in the shuffle, but I think is tremendous, and I think especially for any horror enthusiast, uh Green Room is maybe the best siege movie to come out this century. I yes. think it's like such a phenomenal like way of building tension. There's something so simple, if you don't know, it's a movie about a punk band that goes to a bar that is housed and run by a bunch of white supremacists, and they want to try and leave, but circumstances make it so they are trapped in their green room, as they have to try and escape from there. Um, it's one of Anton Yelchin's last movies, and he's so good in it. Uh, Leah Shawcat's very good. Patrick Stewart plays the main um, Nazi guy, and he's so terrifying in a very subtle, <laughs> subtle way. Um, and even, like, that movie has... I won't spoil what exactly it is, but I'll just say there's a point where somebody uses a, a box cutter on something that's not a box. Um, <laughs> and I remember watching that in a theater, and I've never felt an entire theater completely lose all breath at the same time. Just <laughs> everyone was like, oh, oh my god. The, the violence is so real in a really disturbing way, but that movie... Movie kicks so much ass. That's one of my favorites. Of yes. Particular. Yeah. Did, okay. If you had to pick one favorite A twenty four, where 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 your head at, boy? <sighs> Fuck. I mean, it's such a. 
Ugh, that's so hard. I fucking hate you. I know, I know. <laughs> For other reasons, too, but that's one for right now. Um, I mean, I can't really, like, it, it's like Josh said in his feedback, that it's, it's so yeah. hard to narrow it down to one. The three that I always come back to are, like, Hereditary, which I think yeah. is, like, so phenomenal. Previous guest, Tori DePina, summed it up so beautifully. It's like, it's a movie where you're watching it and all of your oil is drained out um, of your person, and then it's replaced with, like, sacrificial lamb blood. <laughs> <laughs> which is the most accurate summation of a movie I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, and then um, the, this a ghost story, which we covered here, but then also Room. Like, a lot of people brought up Room, the movie that won Brie Larson her Oscar, the movie that introduces to adorable Jacob Tremblay. And it's another yeah. movie where, like, you feel it, it's a movie about overcoming such adversity to the point where I haven't seen it since, you know, it came out in theaters. I don't know if, like, that's a movie where, like, I have to take a breather. It's like a Schindler's List where it's just like, that's an amazing movie I love, and I gotta take, like, a solid amount of years between watches to like yeah. really go back to it necessarily. That's an incredible movie. Ugh, it's it's so hard. There's so many great ones, right? Dude, dude, you know what we haven't mentioned yet, and I'm shocked it hasn't come up yet. Fucking first reformed. Yes, first reformed is another yeah. one in the vein of um, Room, where it's so incredibly, especially right now. And it's a Paul Schrader movie who wrote Taxi Driver, one of the great cinema writers of the last like 50 years. Um, it's, it's an incredible down to earth little movie that once again, just like, man, I'm so glad I saw this. I'm, I'm not going to watch it again for a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, uh, special shouts out to Cresha. That movie fucking slaps, uh, and American honey. I, I, we didn't talk about that one either. American honey is so fucking good. That was one where I kind of feel about that one the same way I feel about another one from the guy who did Krishna, uh, Trade Were Chill. Freaking Honey, the same way I feel about his film, uh, It Comes at Night. Which is to say, there's so many things I respect and really love about those movies, but at the same time, I also kind of feel like after a certain point, it's a bit of like, where are we going? Where's the direction here? I'm not quite sure. But that it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I definitely would still recommend, like with um, American Honey, it's phenomenal performances from Sasha Lane and especially yeah. her and um, Shia LaBeouf are great in that movie. Yeah. They're worth seeing the movie for, for sure. And even it comes at night, I think it has a similar thing with like Joel Edgerton and the, like the whole cast. I think it, that's an interesting post-apocalyptic movie. I just feel like that's one especially where like, that is, I remember seeing that with like a group of friends in a theater and they all, fucking loathed it. <laughs> it comes at night. It's like the key sort of example of like the weird elevated horror anger that comes at A24 a lot from people who like are sold a movie that feels like, oh man, this is like going to be like a spooky horror movie, like zombies, all this other shit. And it comes at night is very much not that. <laughs> yeah. At all. It's, it's very much sort of like, oh, what's happening around people? Like, oh, there's some kind of horrible thing happening, but we're not going to really showcase it except in flashbacks and dream sequences and shit. Um, and, uh, you know, I easily can see people getting <laughs> really pissed off at that movie. <laughs> um, but there's still, like, so much crap at the same time going on. There's really great one-shots, and it comes at night that make it, like, a f it, that's the thing, is even the, the most interesting kind of ones that I don't like from A24 are the frustrating ones. Ones like that, where it's just like, man, I see there's so much craft and greatness in this movie, I just can't quite get on its wavelength. It's the yeah. way I feel about... Speaking of a few other ones, a few people mentioned, like, Black Coat's Daughter. I rewatched it after I really didn't like it the first time. I still feel more in that vein of, like, it comes a night where I'm like, there's so much I do like about this movie. Like, Kieran Shipka's great, and there's so much great atmosphere. But it's also kind of just leaving me cold on an emotional level. The, the one that I, I think a lot of people also mentioned I agree with, Slice kind of pisses me off. Because it yeah. has so much talent involved. Um, and it's such a 
fucking like vacuous waste of time as a horror comedy. <laughs> like when you have Zazzy Beats and Paul Shear and so many great people, and the standout of your cast is Chance the Rapper, <laughs> you know you kind of <laughs> fucked up. Well, we talked a lot about those movies. Thank you for spurring all this discussion with that feedback, listeners. Uh, and we also want to thank a few other people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. And thanks to Emily Scarter for the art that is provided for our show. Um, and then, of course, thanks to Ryan Quarterman for being here as a guest. Um, Ryan, when you're not on this show and apparently murdering Adam Thomas, uh, where can people find you <laughs> on the internet? You can find me on Letterboxd at Ryan Quarterman. You can find me on uh, Instagram at Ryan underscore Quarterman. That's C-O-R-D-E-R-M-A-N. And you can also find me eventually when we post an episode on the podcast, the DVD stack with Ryan and Zach. Yeah, still um, not released as of when we're recording this, but uh, hope soon, soon maybe. Dude, I don't know, man. I, I just run the shit. I don't make the big decisions, man. Is, is it going to be like Prince, where you just have like a fucking warehouse full of podcast recordings that aren't revealed until both you and Zach are passed away? Honestly, that's been our joke since starting this, <laughs> is that it's just really fun to record episodes, and eventually people will see them, but, like, right now, it's for our biggest fans, which is ourselves. Uh, well, uh, you can find more of us here at Devil Edge Double Bill at Pod. like I said, Facebook and Twitter, that's where we share those feelers for you to send feedback over to us. You can also send feedback to uh, DoubleEdgeDoubleBill at gmail.com. Uh, and uh, that's all spelled out. And uh, you can also uh, s- just follow me on Twitter or Instagram as at not the who's Tommy. Um, I also do some writing for places like MarianiThomas.wordpress.com, uh, where I post reviews and stuff. I have a review right now for Pixar's Onward, which I found to be a delightful little uh, fantasy movie um, for for all you out there. And then uh, TwoSuperheroFans.com, where we post uh, superhero or just pop culture like satire news. Like right now, we have a lot of articles brewing about um, all these Rise of Skywalker retcons. We got a lot of plans for like how the absurdity of those have been going forward since the novelizations and stuff came out. Um, and uh, you can also subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, other podcasting platforms. And uh, you can listen to us, of course, on the ESO Network, along with all the other great podcasts there. And you can also dig into our archives on the Podbean feed uh, for the first like 67 episodes that we did before we were on the ESO Network. And nothing else, just uh, if you could please rate, review, or just share the show around to give us more visibility, we would greatly appreciate that. But, now Ryan... We had your picking for next week, and uh, Adam did give me his two sanctioned picks once again uh, before you, d- d- you know, just bash his head in or something, whatever you did to him, <laughs> you, you son of a bitch. Um, he gave me his picks. He had the two good picks, and I had the two bad picks for our next topic, which a week from the day we're releasing this will be not just St. Patrick's Day, uh, but also the birthday of one Mr. Kurt Russell, who's a favorite I know of myself and Adam, and Ryan, I'm sure you love Kurt Russell's work as well. I I do. So I have two Adam's two good picks and my two bad picks. And so uh, usually each of us would pick a number between 1 and 10, and that would get us the good and the bad feature, whichever uh, that number is closest to. But Ryan gets to do that now with the two picks. So first for Adam's two good picks, Ryan, number between 1 and 10. Four. All right. Uh, that was very close to uh, his pick at number three, the uh, 2015 um, horror western film Bone Tomahawk. I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, then, um, number seven, he had Escape from New York. Oh, I love that movie, too. <laughs> uh, well, now for my two bad picks, Ryan. Number two, one and ten. <laughs>
Uh, I'm gonna go <laughs> uh, eight. Okay. At number nine, I had one mainly I haven't seen before, but I've heard very mixed reviews on, and it's produced. It's a movie that produced a very interesting word franchise afterward of TV shows and such. Stargate from 1994. Mm. Um, and then at number two, I had Three Thousand Miles to Graceland. All right, so that, that that'll be an interesting double feature: Stargate and Bone Tomahawk, but with very odd films. <laughs> Uh, Well, Ryan, uh, I guess that's the end of our talking here, so it's time for me to ride you like a jet ski as you fart. Let's go! The classiest way to end a podcast. Good night, everybody. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.